Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. Each week I turn to Scripture and our faith to provide insights for a happy and faithful life to which almost anyone can relate. This week I'm going to be looking at a couple of challenging stories about our relationship to money and wealth. Note that my sermon title is How to Be Rich, Not How to Get Rich. I'm not the one to turn to if you want to know how to get rich, but I may be able to help explain how these biblical lessons teach us a thing or two about how to live with whatever wealth we have. FYI, I'm starting with the assumption that you and I, if we have a roof over our head, clothes on our backs, and enough to eat, are relatively rich in accordance with the world's standards. Rich is a relative term. Now don't get me wrong. I know that most of you work hard to make a living. Some of you may be experiencing serious financial hardships, barely scraping by. If you are struggling, what Jesus has to teach us today may help you live with hope and without resentment against those who have it easier than you do. First of all, Why talk about the topic of money and wealth at all? The reason is simple. Social and economic justice were central concerns of Jesus in his teaching and in his interactions with the religious and political powers of the day. For Jesus, the rule of God in the world was to be just and compassionate. He experienced the religious establishment of his day as the opposite. Many religious leaders, like the powerful rulers around them, were more concerned with lining their pockets than with the welfare of the common people. From a modern perspective, we're forced to deal with money and managing wealth no matter where we turn. If you're a young family starting out, you're concerned about providing for your family not only today, but in the future. If you're a young person embarking on a career and out on your own for the first time, you're considering what career will help you get ahead and maybe pay off the college loans you've incurred. And if you're a senior like me, you're anxious to know that you'll have the resources to see you through your retirement and deal with the challenges of old age. The following passage is one of a number of parables that Jesus told that was aimed at the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and scribes who lived like kings at the expense of those they were supposed to minister to. These teachings, not surprisingly, made Jesus unpopular among the religious elites. One of the characters in the parable, Lazarus, is not to be confused with the Lazarus the brother of Mary and Martha, who Jesus raised from the dead in the Gospel of John. Our reading is found Luke 16, 19-31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. 
even the dogs would come and lick his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all of this, between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so. And no one can cross from there to us. He said, Well then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Here ends the reading. Boy, I've read and preached on this parable many times in the course of my ministry. I'm hard-pressed to find anything but guilt-inducing judgment within it. The unnamed rich man lived a sumptuous life. I picture him stepping over the emaciated frame of Lazarus without even seeing him as he came and went through the gate of his palace. Reminds me of a recent trip I took to New York City and how I quickly trained myself to not lock eyes with the street people lying on the sidewalk asking me for money or to buy food. I rationalized my hard-heartedness either with the thought that they would only hard themselves further by using the money for alcohol or drugs, or that the problem is so vast that my meager contributions wouldn't make a difference anyway. That's the usual rationalization. I remember my brother describing his experiences in the Peace Corps back in the early 1960s in Nigeria. He was a young, naive, and idealistic volunteer from the Midwest who had been attracted by John F. Kennedy's call to serve the poor. Coming from the prosperous farm country, he was shocked because he had never witnessed poverty and human misery on that level that he saw in rural Africa. And he said the most disturbing thing that he experienced is that one day as he came out of the post office where he had received a check for his meager Peace Corps allowance, and he casually stepped over the dead body of a man lying in front of the door. Long after he came home, his guilt bothered him and made him feel helpless to really make a difference. He didn't even think about that poor dead man. After two years, he was able to leave the hungry and the dying behind and resume a comfortable life 
as a teacher. And yet the poverty and the suffering continued. What troubles me about the story of the rich man and Lazarus and the memory of my brother is that how quick we are to live in denial of the human suffering that exists right in front of our well-scrubbed faces. In addition to that, Jesus' parable says that we're not able to change no matter what warnings we may receive. When the rich man begs Father Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his equally rich brothers so that they won't have to suffer, Abraham replies, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Am I listening? Are you listening? That seems to imply that we're all doomed to the punishment, at least metaphorically, of the rich man. We won't change our behaviors if someone rises from the dead, i.e. Jesus. Does that mean that even though I am a Christian and profess to follow the teachings of Jesus, I won't be able to take these lessons to heart? Like I said, this seems to be a message of judgment and punishment, not of grace and redemption. But hold on, I'm not going to leave us there. I want to share a lesson from 1 Timothy that may hold out some hope for us. The passage contains probably the most famous quote about money ever spoken. Paul said to Timothy, There is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Now as for those in the present age who are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. Here ends the reading. In this letter, Paul is writing to his partner Timothy, with whom he was establishing new churches. Timothy is evidently the leader of his congregation. And what Paul says, it's likely this is a pretty affluent group of young Christians. These new Christians would have needed to learn about what faith in Jesus required of them, including their relationship with money and how they treated the poor. Paul urges humility, commitment, 
godly living. He has a warning for them about their relationship with wealth reminiscent of the story of the rich man and Abraham. He says those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then he hits them with a famous saying, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Well, here we go again. Condemnation and judgment on the rich. But hold on a minute. Paul does not say that money per se is the root of evil, but the love of money that's the problem. Money is a trap, a hazard that can divert us from the faithful life and true happiness and contentment. As the Beatles sang, I don't care too much for money, for money can't buy me love. Despite the fact that most of us would like to have more money, we realize that money can't buy us love, or a lot of other things for that matter. Now is where Paul's teaching moves past the judgment and guilt and provides us with some helpful advice. He now speaks to Timothy about what to tell those in his congregation who in the present age are rich. Paul is not condemning those who have wealth, but giving them instructions on how to live faithfully with wealth. Remember, I said that my title today is not how to get rich, but how to be rich. And the answer is pretty simple. Do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. Well, I just heard a great corporate sigh of relief. Maybe there is a way that we can avoid the horrible burning punishment after all. Even those of us who have acquired some wealth. But not so fast. We should never use this as an excuse to go on living lives of greed without any concern for our neighbors. I should not be able to walk down the streets of New York oblivious to the poverty and suffering that I see around me. Something is required of me. In the words of another source, the prophet Micah, What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God. One wealthy person who seems to have lived according to these words is Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie was a Scottish-American industrialist who built the Pittsburgh Carnegie Steel Company, which later served as the basis of U.S. Steel. He was arguably one of the richest people in history. Carnegie was not known for his wealth, but what he did with the wealth he acquired. He was a great philanthropist, who graces, whose name graces museums, libraries, universities, and public buildings, and is associated with many ongoing charitable trusts and organizations. Philanthropist really means a lover of humanity, not, by the way, a lover of money. In 1889, he wrote an essay titled The Gospel of Wealth, in which he called upon the rich to improve society 
to the benefit of humankind. He supported progressive taxation and the estate tax and encouraged a great wave of philanthropy. Carnegie also gave away at least 90% of his fortune by the end of his life. History is full of philanthropists who have greatly contributed to the welfare of others. A greater contribution than money, however, is the wealth that is created in the form of jobs and economic opportunities for the less wealthy. Also, philanthropic support for schools, libraries, and the arts makes upward mobility possible for the poor. For wealth to be a blessing requires its administration in a just and equitable manner that benefits the largest number of people without discrimination. The type of philanthropy practiced by Andrew Carnegie and the barons of industry and business lies beyond the scope of most of us. Christian stewardship and sharing what we have with others, however, is foundational to Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and almost all of the world's religions. Jesus taught, From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And from the one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. Seen from this perspective, wealth need not be guilt-producing, but a gateway to live a rich spiritual life and being rich in good works. The generation of wealth is necessary for providing us with the things we need and want to live happy, healthy lives. Money is the medium through which we interact with others and is necessary for carrying out our daily lives and allowing the possibility to have and do the things that give us pleasure and satisfaction. But the pursuit of money can also lead us down a selfish and destructive path that ultimately harms others and the world around us. So, in the end, the question is not to practice how to get rich. We need to learn how to be rich. When we do, God promises spiritual wealth beyond measure. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. May God bless you with an abundant and fulfilling life. And may your life be a blessing to others.